Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we meet John Allen, Professor of Biosensors and Bioinstrumentation at Coventry University. And we chat about photopathismography, or PPG, which is a simple, low-cost optical measurement technique with a myriad of healthcare applications. John also talks about a new focus collection in the journal Physiological Measurement, which examines the state of the art in PPG. But first, the podcast goes to the movies. The film Don't Look Up is a satire that focuses on the intersection of science and politics in the run-up to a global catastrophe. Released in December, it's now streaming on Netflix, and it's polarized viewers and critics alike. And very interestingly, it sparked a debate in the scientific community about both the film's content and how it has been received by the critics. To chat about the movie, I'm joined by two of my Physics World colleagues, Laura Hiscott, who has just written a review of Don't Look Up that will appear in the February issue of Physics World, and Tushna Commissariat, who is our resident sci-fi expert. Hi, Tushna, and hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Hi, Hamish. Good to be on. Before we get stuck into our discussion, I'll give a brief plot synopsis that doesn't give too much away about the ending of the film. But just a warning, towards the end of this program, we will be discussing how the film ends, and I'll give you a spoiler alert at that point. The film begins at a telescope, where the postgraduate student Kate DiBiaschi, played by Jennifer Lawrence, discovers a comet Her supervisor, Dr. Randall Mindy, who is played by Leonardo DiCaprio, calculates the comet's trajectory and concludes that it will strike Earth in about six months, wiping out life on the planet. The concerned scientists notify the U.S. authorities about the impending doom, expecting immediate action to deflect the comet. Only they're horrified when the U.S. president, played by Meryl Streep, takes a wait-and-see approach. What follows is a farcical chain of events in which Kate and Dr. Mindy use popular media outlets to try to convince the public and the president to deflect the comet. And this is in the face of a growing right-wing opposition that appears to be orchestrated by the creepy tech gazillionaire Peter Isherwell, played by Mark Rylance, and he seems to have other plans for the celestial object. So this is a film about science, at least in part. So how how do we think that science and scientists are portrayed in the film? Laura? Um, So I think... The scientists seem to be um, predominantly portrayed through their interactions with the media. There's not that much of them kind of doing the science. Um, But I think it shows really two sides to these scientists, that they're humans. You know, um, on the one hand, you see them trying to communicate um, their subject 
but getting bogged down in the detail, trying to be very careful, talking about the the uncertainties and the statistics of it, um, and in very kind of cold, unemotional language. But then, of course, you also have the other side where you really see how much they care about it and the passion coming through. Obviously, mostly because it's it's such a a scary event that that could happen if nothing happens but but i think also because they really care about their subject um in the early scenes um before they realize that the comet is on a collision course with earth i think you get a glimpse of of their passion for astronomy as well so um yeah i think it does a good job of portraying scientists as humans and, and there's a great scene, isn't there, where where Kate and Dr. Mindy are are on this television program, sort of lighthearted television program, and Kate gets in, increasingly frustrated that uh, that nobody seems to be taking the Earth's impending destruction seriously, and she she you know quite reasonably loses it, and and this sort of very quickly becomes an, an internet meme. And, you know, there's that whole sort of idea of the, of the crazy scientist, isn't there, Tushna? That, that seems to be a, a regular theme in science fiction. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I I had mixed feelings about how the scientists were portrayed, um, but kind of like the more the film went along, I, I realised that they were really playing into farcical stereotypes. None of the characters, not the scientists, not the politicians that we see, um, were sort of a completely realistic portrayal. You know, at the end of the day, they are all, you know, you, you, they, it is a bit of a farce, the whole film. So that, that kind of made it a bit more palatable for me. Because initially, right at the very start, as you mentioned, um, you know, when Jennifer Lawrence's character loses it, it kind of threw me a bit. And I was a bit annoyed because I was like, oh, here we go. They're playing into the whole hysterical female stereotype. And like, you know, she had been really rather calm. And, and you know, she is, she is young and she's savvy. She would have foreseen... Um, sort of the fallout of, of sort of losing it and screaming on TV. And absolutely, at the same time, you realise that she's so frustrated and scared, so it makes sense. But I wasn't kind of buying it right then. You know, I was a bit like, it annoyed me that, you know, she ended up being that character and then, you know, the the, the male scientist, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, uh, who, you know, right at the start, as you see, he's much more the nervous type. He's the one who's really freaking out before the interview with his Xanax and everything. And, and somehow he pulls it out of the bag and he's all calm, cool, collected. So that kind of bothered me a bit. But then I guess as it went along, it, it played into their longer narrative obviously, that he, of course, became um, the face and then the puppet, you know, whereas she very quickly becomes a disenfranchised who, you know, is also well, very right all along. Um, so, so yeah, it, it is, and it is both of them are very much Hollywood scientists. So I, I did think that those portrayals were quite stereotypical, but then I, I guess they played into the narrative and, and that maybe. That's how we. That's how people see scientists. Right. You know. Yeah, that's right. And and Dr. Mindy, 
very quickly becomes uh you know this sort of sex symbol the you know the the the, the sort of silver fox um uh very stereotypical older man older and wiser man sex symbol so yeah i i think you're right in in, in that it really does portray scientists in terms of how the public sees them but i, I really thought jennifer lawrence's performances kate dibiaski was was really good i you know i looked at kate and I, I I could recognize um, you know people that I did PhDs with many many years ago, and and the thing that I I love the most about about her character is that she was always referred to as a PhD candidate, and never uh, a PhD student or a grad student. And you know I can remember back when, when I was a a grad student, I always insisted on calling myself. <laughs> PhD candidate because you know I'd, I I was done with being a student you know I wanted to move on <laughs> and w w when I heard that you know it was right at the beginning of the film I thought uh, wow you know this is great I'm really going to like uh, the character of Kate and and sure enough um, yeah she was she was definitely uh, a fantastic character I think the the best character in the, in the film oh yeah. Absolutely. And and sort of she's the character who I guess we're meant to identify with if you sort of if your feelings and beliefs are in line with what the film is sort of suggesting, then she's the you know, you kind of go through the whole anger and <laughs> disbelief and then the grief and then the acceptance, <laughs> you know, the seven stages, etc. And so she's the one who I guess uh, most of us common people will be most aligned with that like yeah what, what, what are you going to do after a certain point and I mean I don't I don't know I don't know what you guys thought about this but I felt genuinely that you know the Dr Mindy his character that he was kind of awful I hated how easily he was manipulated and who he turned into and then you know once he obviously realizes you know, I don't know how he couldn't foresee what was going to happen in the middle of the film. And so I felt like he was very easily forgiven. Not, I mean, I'm not just also talking by his wife, who, you know, sort of leaves halfway through the film. That I can even appreciate once they realize the sort of severity that you might, you might forgive for an evening. <laughs> but sort of, I wanted more people to be angry with him and more like, you know, I wanted... I wanted Jennifer Lawrence's character to have a right go at him at some point and be like, you know, you caved and you gave in. and Yeah, yeah, the bit where he's, he's on that ad and he's reassuring everyone that it's okay. And yes. yeah, and oh. I, I wonder whether there was a fear there that he had that, you know, he had to try this other approach because if he did the same as what Kate did, then he would lose that voice altogether. And it kind of becomes this dilemma between not having a voice at all or having a voice but having to tone down your message um, because of that yeah. but that's what it started out as that's what it started out as you know because when he initially you know when he's like oh my god they're going to do this you guys they go to their bar to chat about it and he's trying to convince them that look let me at least be the voice in the room so that we know and you know I, I believed him then but then how quickly he you know he he did get completely sucked in by the the glamour and the fame and the money and he sort of you know, sort of just completely all his morals and his principles. And, you know, that is some, they make a point of that at one point, but the evil billionaire guy kind of says, doesn't he, that you think that you're guided by your morals, but you're not, you know, and that's, that is very true. And I, I sort of saw him as a 
it's quite a good minor villain. I was mad at him more than the very obvious villains. Yeah, that, that that's interesting. I mean, that that sort of complexity in in the character of of Doctor Mindy, I suppose, takes us on to. You know, the idea that th this impending comet catastrophe and the sort of lack of action that um, that, that government is taking is, is seen by many as an as sort of an allegory for our response to climate change. And I suppose, you know, how that can be a, a very complicated issue for people. So, um, D D Tushna, did, did you see it that way? Did, did you see this film as a... Uh, 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 is climate change really at the heart of this, not not a comet? Um, I must admit, I didn't see it as that. Um, and, and maybe because it, I don't quite agree that it's a good enough um, uh, allegory, because it's, you know, the, I'm sorry, but there is a huge difference between a giant flaming ball of, <laughs> you know, fire in the sky and climate change, unfortunate as it is, because... It, you know, climate change is so much slower and the effects sort of are creeping up on us. And so it's easy to dismiss. Right. Um, what I drew more parallels to in terms of the response and the reach and all of that was much more to the COVID pandemic. Definitely. Yeah. You know, like a lot of the times when I was going, oh, it's ridiculous. They'd never do that. And then I was going, no, 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 this is this is so almost exactly like the rhetoric that we've had in the last two years where, you know, People could be saying, "Oh, we've got a hospital full of dead people, etc." And people say, "No, no, don't, don't, no, it's a lie. It's it's staged. It's you know, it it just uh, unless you were the person in the hospital bed, it felt like for some people uh, and for some sort of narratives, it uh, just wasn't real, and it still isn't. You know, some people still debate that. And so for me, I drew much more, many more parallels to COVID." Uh, and not necessarily immediately to climate change. That was more when I read about their take later on, and I was like, "Oh, interesting! Is that what you were going for?" <laughs> you know? Yeah, I read a, I read a, an article. I mean, there's so many articles about "Don't Look Up." Mm. Um, I, I read an article in the New Yorker uh, recently. It was a, an interview with Adam McKay, who's the the director of the film. And Amy Meinzer, who is um, an astrophysicist, I suppose maybe more correctly, a planetary scientist, who basically her job is to look out for comets and asteroids that are about to hit the Earth. So Meinzer was a science advisor on the film, and um, she really wanted to extend the the time frame so that you know we we didn't have just six months to deal with um to deal with the problem she you know f from her point of view that wasn't realistic um but uh for, for whatever reason um i suppose for a uh, dramatic effect the 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 timeline was shrunk down to six months and yeah i mean i i agree it's it's, it's definitely too short for uh, climate change. What, what, what about you, Laura? Are, are you looking more at COVID as an allegory, or do you see the the connections to climate change? Um, yeah, to be honest, I think um, I don't know whether it's just because of what I I tend to think about too much or, or read online. But when I saw the trailer, I think the first thing that hit me was this must be about climate change, um, just because. I don't think, um, well, of course, I, I can 100% see the parallels with COVID as well. But um, yeah, I, I just thought there's no other way. I think if if we didn't have this kind of backdrop of 
climate change constantly in the back of our minds. Um, I think it just wouldn't really, this film wouldn't make sense. I think it would just be really confusing. I would think, what? This film is saying that these scientists tell people that they've got six months before before the whole earth is destroyed and no one does anything about it. And it really only made sense to me through uh, as an analogy to climate change. As Tushna mentioned, it it isn't at all a perfect analogy in the sense that um, it's not as if um, some companies have set this comet in motion and a pro- like as a side effect of profiting from it. And also it is, of course, like um, it's in a discrete location, it's visible and tangible. And there's a very, very specific time at which it's going to hit and do all this damage. Um, and these are all the reasons why psychologically we're not kind of very good at reacting to climate change because climate change isn't like that. It's much more vague. Um, but I think in a way that's why the analogy is so useful to really to really portray the absurdity of our reaction um, with something that's so much more um, tangible, I guess. And definitely that that simplicity is, uh, you know, it comes out in the title of the film, Don't Look Up, at, 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 you know, sort of halfway through the film, uh, the United States sort of divides into two factions. Um, one faction that says, look up, look up, because you can see the comet. And um, another faction that's saying, don't look up, <laughs> don't look up. Uh, there's nothing to see, even though it's very clear um, that, that that the comet is in the sky and it's getting closer every day. Uh-huh. So it is, yeah, I mean, it is a, a, a sort of a very one-dimensional issue. Um, it, it's either there or it isn't. There aren't uh, many sort of shades of gray that you get in uh, w- with climate change, for example. I did also think it was really interesting at what point in the film they choose to bring in the visual. Um, and, you know, when, when, when Kate first spots it, it's right when her, her love interest, you know, the, played by Timothy Chalamet, sort of, you know, uh, is he's, he's telling her, oh, I don't think I believe in this anymore. Maybe there isn't a comet to even, even someone who, you know, is like on her team, etc. after the sort of nightmare for her of her parents also telling her, you know, that was a heartbreaking scene. <laughs> I had me in tears. Um, so, you know, right when he's saying, oh, I don't think I believe it, she's she's not even listening because she spotted it in the sky. And so, you know, I thought that was, again, a really interesting parallel of when they start seeing it. O- on a complete aside, I did think it, w- it looked beautiful <laughs> in the sky. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's closer and closer. <laughs> It's one of those things that, like, you know, a couple of hundred million years into the future, as our galaxy collides with Andromeda, we'll be able to see it bigger and bigger in the sky. <laughs> it will look amazing. So I was thinking of that a little bit. Um, like, well, at least it's a miraculous view before it all goes to hell. <laughs> so yeah. what do we think about... Um, the science in the film that I did, I mean, obviously all of the, you know, science about the orbital trajectories, oh, I did have a little giggle when they were like, how do we calculate this? Let's do what Carl Sagan would have done. <laughs> okay. That's right. And, and Kate did have a little Carl Sagan figurine, didn't she? That she put on her desk. Yeah. I I, I mean, I, I thought that was interesting that um, that Dr. Mindy worked out the trajectory on a whiteboard 
Um, you know, rather than having some, you know, amazing computer simulation thing showing the comet coming in that, you know, he's writing numbers down on a whiteboard, which I thought, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, definitely when I was a PhD student, you know, 30 years ago, we would have written things out on whiteboards. I don't know if they do it today. But, um, but yeah, I thought that I thought that was really interesting. But you know, I think the thing is that the, the it wasn't a very sciencey science fiction film. No, wasn't it? No, no, um, no, no, there wasn't much. There wasn't much science in it. It was more, um, you know, how, how how scientists behave and how people react to science. But the the film, you know, although it's been I think it's, it's it's definitely got a thumbs up from viewers, but some professional critics have not been so kind, and and those bad reviews have led to a, a backlash, um, particularly amongst people in the environmental movement, who say that these bad reviews are are just sour grapes for the unflattering yet realistic way that the media is portrayed in the film. Um, you, you know, essentially mocking the scientists and 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 helping uh, the evil corporation um, uh, convince people to ignore the comet. So, do, do you think that the media was portrayed fairly? Um, I mean, I, I I have my doubts, uh, Laura. Um, I think there's really. In, in reality, there's a broad spectrum of media. You'll find journalists and and TV shows that kind of you know, are better at portraying the science and worse at doing that and ones that are more interested in knowing the details and the facts and ones that, are, you know, just want to brush over it and have clickbait stories. Um, so I think, um, yeah, it, I suppose there's only so much that can be portrayed in in a two-hour film. Um, and I suppose they chose to kind of focus in on that um, clickbaity media that isn't interested in being serious ever and only wants to keep things fun um, because that that's what is seen as the problem, I suppose, in reality. Um, so perhaps they didn't have room to, to kind of show the whole spectrum. Um, but I definitely think that there are, in reality, um, TV shows and journalists that are exactly like the ones that we see in the film. Um, they do exist. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I, I'd echo Laura on that. And I'd say, I mean, you know, in a way, again, you know, it, it is quite farcical. It does take everything to sort of an extreme. It's it's not a middle ground kind of thing. They're trying to do that, aren't they? And so now we're coming to the major spoiler alert, where we actually give away what happens. So uh, essentially, there, there is an attempt to to break up the comet. Um, so that it can be safely brought down to Earth and all the very valuable minerals that it has can be mined by the evil corporation run by Peter Isherwell. But that fails and the comet is on a collision course with Earth. Um, there's nothing that can stop it. And... Um, and I suppose the film ends with the Earth exploding. Um, what, what, was that a bit of a downer, yeah. Laura? <laughs> did you did you see that one coming? Um, <laughs> I mean, um, 
This might sound strange, but I think in a way, for most of the film, I was kind of hoping that that would happen, um, only because I felt like the film's whole message would be completely diluted if it didn't. Um, I mean, if the if the billionaire had, um, you know, if his new technology had succeeded and everything had been fine, then what does that say about reality? Is that saying that oh yeah, we can we don't have to worry about reducing our emissions or anything because techno fixes down the line will save us or something. Um, so I was kind of in this kind of odd space where I was obviously rooting for the characters and not wanting anything, not wanting this tragedy to happen. But at the same time, um, I felt like it was kind of necessary to to get the message across. And and, and I have to say that, um, you, you know, the baddies actually um, don't, you know, don't win out completely, do they? Because um, uh, as the comet is sort of plummeting to Earth, um, the, the president and um, Peter Isherwell and lots of other sort of rich and powerful people get on a rocket and are put in, I suppose, cryogenic suspended animation, who knows? And they travel, is it for 22,000 years to, to an exoplanet that apparently um, resembles earth in many ways and um and they land on the exoplanet and and everything is everything is looking great garden of eden-esque isn't it when they're sort of naked they come out beautiful and and so so the film well it ends it doesn't quite end then but it it almost comes to an end with um with these escapees the people responsible i suppose for blowing up the earth um, being surrounded by um, some rather lovely but very vicious um, animals that uh, possibly are going to eat all of them, uh, thus ending humanity um, on a distant exoplanet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, just, just that ending in particular, um, uh, may, maybe you both know exactly what I'm talking about or not, but it really reminded me of a particularly jerky plot point from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was, you know, they had the whole thing that, like, human beings came from another, you know, there's lots of other planets and that. But the, but the big sort of joke was that there was some planet that was destroyed and it sent off all these ships. And the ones who landed on Earth were the lawyers and the hairdressers. <laughs> it was like, you know, the, the worst of the worst landed on this one planet and I had like I had this moment of like oh god it's the lawyers and the hairdressers planet point two <laughs> you know but um maybe maybe they won't survive for much longer so that was actually quite satisfying because you know the the, the sort of rage I felt at the fact that they got off the planet and the, the absolute horror of where she completely forgets about her son <laughs> you know this like awful character who you hate throughout the film and yet, like a cockroach, he emerges <laughs> right at the end for those, um, for, for anyone who hasn't watched it in this era of Marvel films, um, everybody knows that there's at least one, if not two, post-credit scenes. So there is a final post-credit scene at the very end, which is basically Jonah Hill's character climbing out of the rubble and immediately live streaming. And he goes, last man on earth, yo. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's, 
essentially the 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 last person surviving on earth is is a is sort of a, a version of Ivanka Trump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's the, the, exactly. the son of the president. So on that cheery note, let's um let's see what we think about this film. Thumbs up or thumbs down, Laura? Thumbs up, definitely from me. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed it. I I can see that it was a bit obvious in its message, I suppose, um, which is what a lot of critics have said about it, but. Also, I think that must be very cathartic for people um, watching it who who feel the same way. <laughs> and Tushna? Yes, it's a thumbs up from me too. I think, um, like Laura, I feel like it really makes you think. And also, um, you know, halfway through the film, I was going, right, how are they going to save it? How are they going to pull it out of the bag? What's going to be the solution? And maybe we can use it going ahead. And then you realise, no, it's too late. It's too late. And so you learn that very hard lesson of when it is really too late um and so make you think and it will definitely make you look up <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it's definitely a thumbs up for me um i watched it twice and um i got a lot out of watching it a second time so um it's on it's on netflix you can watch it there and watch it once twice or three times uh, i'd highly recommend it thanks laura and tishna for joining me thanks hamish thanks hamish Next up, Physics World's Tammy Freeman speaks to John Allen, who is Professor of Biosensors and Bioinstrumentation at Coventry University. They chat about photopethysmography, or PPG, a simple, low-cost optical measurement technique with a myriad of healthcare applications. John also talks about a new focus collection in the journal Physiological Measurement, which examines the state of the art in PPG. Photopethysmography, more commonly known as PPG, is a low-cost, non-invasive technique that uses light to measure volumetric changes in blood circulation. PPG is the technology underlying pulse oximeters that measure blood oxygen levels. It's used in wearable devices such as heart rate monitors and has a multitude of other diagnostic applications. To highlight the latest innovations in PPG, the IOP publishing journal Physiological Measurement has put together a focus collection of 20 articles looking at state-of-the-art PPG methods and applications. I'm speaking today with John Allen, Professor of Biosensors and Bioinstrumentation at Coventry University, who's put together the editorial article for this new focus collection. Hello, John. First of all, could you give us a quick explanation of how PPG works? Yes, certainly. Uh, PPG comprises well, photo, as in light, and plevismography. That's um, from the, the Greek, apparently, uh, measuring the changing something. And so for a PPG medical sensor, this is considered to be changes in blood volume in the microvascular bed of tissue with each heartbeat. It is in principle well, a very simple technique, just needing a light source that shines light onto the tissue, for example, the skin, and the light detector placed nearby, which picks up the light coming out of the tissue. Well, as blood it's in tissue is nicely absorbs light, then an alternating signal can be obtained, synchronous with each heartbeat. We get a pulse. So PPG is really an optical pulse detector. 
The measurements are often made at skin sites such as the well, earlobe, finger and toe pad, we can usually get good pulse signals from. Now, although the technique appears relatively simple and needs only very low cost optoelectronic components, that's an LED for the light and a photodiode for the detector, the actual physics of the light interaction with tissue is very complicated. There are several mechanisms that are happening at a time, with the light and the wavelength being very important here, and the layers of tissue all behaving slightly different. It is very complicated. So as well as the heart, though, when it beats, there's also that this PPG signal is influenced by skin temperature, blood pressure changes, your breathing. There's quite a number of factors, actually. Um, that's the beauty of the technique, because we can actually pick up signals related to some of these things like uh, blood pressure um, and breathing. Anyway, work continues in, in looking to understand the PPG signal, and this is ongoing. So what's it actually measuring? Uh, it's a big question mark. It gives you a pulse, but what does it mean? And we know, well, we know that it, what it's like in normal, healthy people, and we know it, how it can change in certain diseases, such as vascular diseases. It is a very interesting physiological signal to measure, analyse and study. Could you maybe describe a couple of example applications of PPG that are currently used in the clinic? Yeah, certainly. Well, there's several application areas for PPG. And I would tend to cluster these, actually, if you don't mind, in four topic areas. Uh, there's uh, clinical physiological monitoring, that's vital signs, such as uh, heart rate, respiration and blood pressure measurement. And one of the most common uh, applications of PPG, I think is what you'd be well aware of, is the pulse oximeter. And this is, measures the oxygen saturation of the blood. There are many pulse oximeters available commercially. There is also autonomic function assessment. And this is looking at the variability of the PPG signal over, say, tens of seconds or several minutes. We can study the signals to investigate how the autonomic nervous system is functioning. For example, by doing measurements pre and post a, a tilt table challenge exercise, look at the change in posture. From an academic point of view, as well as looking at the, what, what the PPG signal actually measures or what it's about, I think academically, the autonomic nervous system or functional assessment is very interesting, one of the most interesting areas for me personally. There is also vascular assessment. And this is looking to detect blockages or stenoses in arteries. Some people call this peripheral arterial disease or PAD. It could also be used in vascular assessment for measuring the advancing stiffness of the blood vessels with age. Uh, one could call this assessment of vascular aging and trying to sort of see what, what is normal aging and what is accelerated aging in certain diseases such as renal disease and diabetes. Then there's a fourth category, if you don't mind me quickly saying, and that is these Non, mainly non-medical fitness devices, uh, well-being monitors, such as come by your smartphone and, and smart watches. And there's a lot of great interest from industry in, in, in producing these now. For me, well, I've spent at least 30 years on and off uh, working in photoplevismography research. The PPG approach I've developed is called multi-site PPG. And this is looking at uh, PPG signals collected simultaneously across the body, from head to foot. Much to date has been done in the field of vascular assessment, particularly detection of arterial stenosis in the legs. This is peripheral arterial disease, PAD. Arterial disease can link silently to problems of disease in the heart and the risk of stroke. So it's important to detect and to detect this early. 
In the later years of my former post at Newcastle Hospitals and Newcastle University, I was awarded significant funding from the NIHR, that's the National Institute of Health Research, and as chief investigator, I led the development of a new pad detector for GPs. It was a massive undertaking to develop a new prototype medical device. Um, I had a great team working with me. This technology is still being commercialised. It would be great one day to, that this technology finds its way into routine practice at the GPs, getting that care closer to home. So, but medical device development, though, is a long, careful process. But, and ultimately, though, we want to see such innovations used for the benefit of the patient and their health care. So that's the one particular example that's very close to my heart, uh, pad detection. What area are you focusing on now that you're at Coventry? I moved posts from Newcastle Medical Physics to Coventry University in the summer of 2020, taking up a new post as chair in biosensors and bioinstrumentation. Noting I've previously set up unique measurement facilities at Newcastle Hospitals, and now I'm doing the same for Coventry University. And this is all in the field of vascular optics um, and the assessment of the microcirculation. Alongside, we also have a fantastic nanosensor fabrication facility currently being commissioned. Now, these two facilities, that's the, the measurement, uh, special measurement room and the nanosensor lab, they're key uh, to us for our development of the next generation of sensors, including, including those using PPG. We are very fortunate that Coventry University has supported this development. Our research centre team is relatively new, though, but is certainly growing. We are called the Centre for Intelligent Healthcare, or the CIH. It is led by my prof uh, colleague, Professor Ding Chang Zheng, a fellow biomedical engineer. There are about 20 in the wider team now, and we have several staff and PhD students specifically working on PPG-related projects. We maintain our links internationally, both uh, scientifically and clinically. Uh, further growth is on its way within the team. I'm in the process of looking to set up three to four PhD studentships for the coming year and working with my PhD network covering Switzerland, Australia, Israel and in the UK. I also collaborate with an EU group, a special interest group called VASC Age Net. We meet regularly and that is a great way to set up new projects and wider collaborations. So there's plenty to keep us busy. I have found PPG research and development especially in novel medical device development, to be a lucrative area, a growth area. I've been very busy preparing and funding applications whilst at Coventry. Just this week, I sent up a funding bid for close to £2 million to develop a new device related to a novel technique of blood pressure measurement in a um, very important clinical application. Dissemination of research and teaching are also very important activities. This last year, under the COVID lockdown, I co-edited a new holistic state-of-the-art book on PPG, and that was with my good colleague, Professor Panikos Kiriachu um, from City uh, University of London. This is out now and published by Elsevier. Now, back in 2007, you published a review article also for the journal Physiological Measurement, just looking at clinical applications of PPG. Now, this paper has now had around 2,000 citations, which is massive for this type of research paper. I mean, so why do you think the technique does attract so much attention from the research community? Yes, that's, that's, that's a good question. I'm not totally sure of the answer there, but, but yes, it's, it's, it is good news. 2,000 is a lot, and especially for a biomedical engineering, medical physics type uh, publication. I think it's quite high up there, you know, in the, in, in the Premier League of, of, of uh, citations for that sort of a, 
those topics. But I'm amazed at the amount of interest the technology is getting. And well, my in my humble opinion, you know, the the 2007 PPG review was a, a bit of a milestone paper. Um, this level of citations does not happen that often, as far as I know, especially in medical physics and biomedical engineering journals. Quite humbled, really. The paper, though, was a review and actually mostly about the, the work of others. Um, so from very capable engineers, scientists and clinicians in this field of technology. And this amazing work goes on. In terms of the attraction of the review, I feel, well, I suppose it's uh, like a lot of the holes of the cheese all lining up nicely in the last decade. Important factors I might suggest would be, well, now there's low-cost semiconductor components, and these are pretty miniature in size. There's a clinical need for accessible, portable, easy-to-use diagnostics and getting that care and those diagnostics closer to home. Also, to empower patients, uh, and particularly now those not perhaps who are poorly, but those are sort of well and health aware. Uh, of course, the, a key factor would be the development and uh, advancement of wearable sensing. Wearable and novel sensing have uh, been a major influence in the last decade. Um, and PPG sensing is now embedded in men, many digital health type devices and gadgets, uh, without um, naming com ones uh, you know, commercially specifically. But the smartphone based uh, devices and smart watches and fitness bands, for example. There's also uh, the boosting computing power and, and pulse wave analysis techniques have really come on in the last decade. Some very interesting uh, pulse analysis techniques are available. Specifically in artificial intelligence, machine learning, the application of deep learning, um, there's a vast array of tools that can be used to explore PPG signals, perhaps from one measurement site uh, or perhaps from across the body simultaneously, perhaps at rest, you can explore these with advanced analysis or during or pre and post uh, an intervention such as a, a tilt exercise or um, breathing changes, breathing pattern changes uh, and so on. And also one thing that's interesting about the signal is uh, I would say it's continuing mystery. It's got a great deal of diversity in applications. And I would say it has it is a potential goldmine really um, in terms of um, developing new diagnostic techniques. Um, there's a lot more that we can do with this technique. There's a lot unknown, and that's the interesting bit from the science point of view. So, so is this sort of the reason for putting together this new focus collection? Well, yes, certainly. Um, well, the PPG community internationally, I think, is, is an open, sherry friendly community. I know some amazing people in academia, healthcare and industry um, through PPG. Certainly, the growing interest in PPG inspired the collection of uh, papers and articles for the IOP Physiological Measurement Journal on this technology. Um, I was particularly teaming up with um, Professor Panikos Kiriachu, that's uh, mentioned earlier from uh, City University of London, uh, my good uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Mo Algendi, formerly of uh, British Columbia, but now works for ETH University in Switzerland. And my good uh, colleague uh, and fellow worker at the uh, CIH, Professor Ding Chang Zheng. So from the focus collection, I think there's about uh, 19 articles that uh, are going to be covered in this. Um, Physiological Measurement Understand is a key journal uh, and has a great attraction to PPG workers. They publish a lot in this, on this topic and have done for many years. Um, the innovations uh, work in sensing analysis and applications stand out in the collection. And it's an international compilation. Also, I need to mention that uh, we also have the, the paper for the um, 
physiological measurement Martin Black Prize winner this year, and that's related to state-of-the-art blood pressure measurements using PPG, cuffless blood pressure measurements, that is. So it's been a good year for me personally, with a focus collection uh, coming out, the PPG book and the station record. So all coming together, actually within about a month or so. So I hope for others, the new publication resources will help inspire them to create, to co-create and push the boundaries further with this uh, apparently simple technology called photoplevismography. So I noticed that the collection includes several articles looking at applications of PPG in cardiovascular health. Um, how's it used here? Can you highlight any new developments in this area? Yes, certainly. Um, there are various papers within the collection um, covering cardiovascular. Um, there's a review article on pulse rate variability, looking at um, how the pulse changes beat by beat, and to look at autonomic uh, function assessment with, with this method. And that's a very interesting review article there. I myself have contributed to the collection on cardiovascular. Uh, for example, one paper on vascular aging in, in nearly a few hundred subjects from quite young to, uh, to old, older, um, was studied. So by uh, just using simple pulse measures of pulse rise time, um, the increase in pulse in rise time can be seen with age. Um, although the relationship with uh, heart rate and blood pressure can complicate uh, uh, this finding. But the rise time of the pulse so, is, a, is a very simple and useful measure, though care is needed when uh, studying the subject with uh, very high heart rates or very low heart rates in those cases, it might um, uh, reduce its diagnostic value. So that was an interesting finding from, from that study. In terms of cardiovascular health, there is another paper on using state-of-the-art deep learning pulse analysis to detect PAD, that is, you know, the arterial disease in the legs. And this is just done by looking at the toe or the big toe BPG pulses. Although only a proof of concept paper, I believe, I think it shows the way forward for devices, uh, modern devices, say on a pay-for-test assessment basis, where the analysis can be perhaps performed in the cloud using AI computing. I think there's uh, three or four papers actually in the collection on artificial intelligence and PPG. I also uh, like to think about the how a diagnostic test result is communicated. So it's not just detecting, say, disease um, or, or finding someone's normal, but it's how you actually communicate that. Um, and so I would say there were some neat lateral thinking ways to do this. And, and there is a paper on what I call the pulse sounder technique uh, with PPG. It's beautiful, it's incredibly simple. Actually, it was something that um, sort of looked at over 10 years ago. It won the, uh, like an Innovations Award, but never really got followed up at that time. Um, so I showed by looking at say, the right and left big toe pulses simultaneously, we could use those signals and, and translate them and communicate the likelihood of, of normal arteries in the legs, or if there's a, likely to be a blockage in an artery in the legs somewhere. So two rules. If the rise time of either toe pulse is normal, then give a, a ping sound with each pulse or each heartbeat. If the rise time is elongated in either toe pulse between right and left legs, then it gives a different sound with each heartbeat. So show bleep, 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 bleep. So there's just sort of you know two rules to learn, and, and the, it's very simple communication and requires minimal hardware and software to, to actually do this this pulse sound the technique. So there's a paper on, on that in its actual uh, clinical assessment, just as a, a pilot study. It performs okay, um, not perfectly accurate, um, but it actually makes it potentially accessible and usable. So medical devices aren't just about diagnostic accuracy. There's a lot of other factors that go into you know, getting their adopted into clinical practice.
So the challenge is getting, uh, so, say, the test to a patient. So we develop lots of new ideas, new techniques and new hardware and software. Um, but how many actually get out there to the patient, to the bedside, uh, to the GP clinic? So it's always um, worth bearing that in mind when moving forward and looking for ideas, looking for things that are really needed as well. But we have to look, approach it from the science point of view, but also the pragmatically from the, the end point of uh, why we might be doing all this work. So, there were, well, these are just um, you know a few examples of cardiovascular health or, uh, PPG papers. Um, look, there's lots more covered in 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 the, uh, the collection. Um, please please do take a look. But emphasising though, it is a collection and it was a international team effort. So finally, um, what do you see as the most exciting application of PPG that we should keep an eye on in the next few years? Well, there's there's lots of areas that. It's early days in some some areas for for, for the technology. Uh, some of it's from a practical point of view. There's, for instance, there's no standardisation in measurement protocols of how you measure PPG and, and the technology used. So people report lots of different results from different equipment, different ways of measuring things in different conditions, or they don't define well in the papers what they're doing. So so there are moves ahead to try and boost um, standardisation uh, in, in measurement techniques. The beauty of PPG, and that's why I, I really like the technique, is it actually measures um, things to do with the big blood vessels, the macro circulation, and also the, the small blood vessels, that's the micro circulation. There's not many techniques that do that. And so for a sensor that's, you know, costs a few pounds or whatever, you can get some very valuable information, uh, composite if you like. And so Bearing in mind, though, if it does measure the macro and microcirculations, the measurement protocol particularly is important. You have to get this right. So one has to be careful with the measurements here. Uh, and there are groups internationally now interested in looking at you know, collectively trying to improve things in this area. Now, another major challenge, and I know, say, big industry has potentially spent, spent a lot of money to, to look at this, is, is an assessment of the signal quality of the PPG signal and trying to well, improve noise rejection. So the technique is very sort of prone. Um, its nemesis is the uh, movement artifact. It's great if you've got a patient lying nice and still on a measurement couch, you do the measurement, you usually get nice pulse traces. But if they're moving around, you get you can usually get terrible pulse traces. And it's quite hard to make a diagnosis with or track B2B changes uh, well. But there are some very clever signal processing techniques that... Um, you know, help uh, read between the lines and get the information you need. There's a lot more work to be done here, um, especially for devices now with, with wearable sensing devices, where it's often made, you know, with ambulatory sort of in, in an ambulatory situation, people walking around, moving around. Understanding the variability of the PPG signal over seconds, minutes, even hours uh, is an interesting area. Understanding the physical origins is also very interesting as well. I'm particularly working on the variability side in my research. Um, my uh, fellow colleague, who's a uh, co-editor on the um, Focus Collection, Professor Kiriachu, uh, their team has uh, published a lot of work on the physical origins of the PPG signal. A lot of work under being undertaken there at the City uh, University of London. The technology is also advancing, and there are groups now looking at imaging photoplevismography, so not just from a, a contact probe on the skin, but actually like a special camera uh, held the sloths of skin surface, say, you know, half a metre away. So you can get a whole picture of uh, PPG-type information. And particularly uh, um, a good colleague, um, Professor Cam Schilling, 
he's doing some great work, and there's a paper by his group uh, on, on imaging PPG in the collection. And wearables is a, is a key area. And our uh, nanosensing lab, that's what we're going to be developing. There's also uh, the modeling and synthesis of signals, uh, particularly looking at um, the pulses, how it might change with disease. Um, sometimes hard to get um, real patient data uh, for applications or big data, but you can actually make up this shortfall by looking to model the signals um, and, and synthesize these and create new data sets in representing health and various diseases. Um, and you can include the macro circulation, that sort of modeling and synthesis, or, and or the micro circulation. There's also artificial intelligence, which is uh, a, a fantastic, fantastic sort of a way of approaching signal analysis, particularly for PPG. And also there's now uh, on, on the horizon quantum computing, perhaps for very big data sets and analytics on a perhaps global scale for a sort of a parallel sensing um, you know, from hundreds of thousands, if not millions of uh, people simultaneously. So um, there's also uh, bound to be the big game changer as well, the big surpriser. And that's the one for another podcast in the coming years, I'm sure. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. We will wait and see. Well, Thanks very much for your time today, John. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. It's good talking to you. Thank you. And listeners can find out more about PPG in the Physiological Measurement Focus Collection, available online at iopscience.iop.org. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to John Allen, Tammy Freeman, Laura Hiscott, and Tushna Commissariat for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. If you're looking for a good book, check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, in which Laura chats with Andrew Glester and Mateen Durrani about some of the best physics-related books of 2021 including a warts-and-all study of the role self-publicity played in the fame of the late Stephen Hawking. And they also chat about an exposition on how science fiction has helped society deal with rapid technological change. This latest episode of the Stories podcast can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Just look for the title, physics books that captured the imagination in 2021. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again next week when we will be chatting about how to have a successful research collaboration. Physics World.